Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. We are early, folks. Early for what, Matt? Early for episode 62 nice. <laughs> of Sampled Radio um, from memory. Yeah, pretty exciting. We have uh, Yuri Ivanov today uh, with us as a guest from Norway. At least I think he's in Norway. We'll find out later. Uh, hi, Yuri. Well, I guess we'll wave at you for now. Hello. How's it going? Good. Nice to be <laughs> awesome. here. Yeah, great. It's nice to have you. Um, looking forward to chatting about your geophysics research and uh, hackathons and all that kind of stuff what, and ha how you're doing over there in uh, Norge. Right. Um, what's going on with you, Graham? I am live from my new podcasting studio. How's my, how's my audio? It's pretty good. It feels like the room is about three times the size of what we can see. It is. It's giant. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, then we'll make some improvements soon with uh, some padding. Some maybe you can ship me one of those cool, cool foam boards that you have. Yeah, um, I think you could just put uh, put a go get a duvet or something and just put it over your head. Yeah. <laughs> nope. You get all echoes today, <laughs> <Please>. baby. <laughs> is it that bad? No, 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 no. It's not at all. It sounds awesome. Okay. Great. Um, Yes, I am actually hosting the UR account from a laptop and using a Windows workstation to to broadcast from. So, uh, pretty exciting. Yeah. So anyway, I'm at my new I'm at my new Austin house. I'm wearing John John Lehman's Lehman J physical shirt. That's pretty lovely. Hey, Matt, do you have any yeah. news? <laughs> Enough about I have me. Them back on the show. I, I do. Well, I had a little bit of uh, news. Um, I wanted to. Uh, mention a list that uh, Jesper Dramsch and others have been putting together on the Software Underground um, GitHub account. Is it awesome? Um, it, yeah, it is awesome. Uh, it's got something like 100 uh, commits to it already. Um, I put the link in the show notes, but if you go to uh, github.com slash Software Underground, Software Underground, I think it's the top thing. Um, it's had uh, a bunch of recent commits, and basically, it's an awesome a list. What's it called? Something like "Awesome Open Geoscience." Yes. So it's a list of cool projects and stuff that you should know about if you're a geoscientist trying to get stuff done with open source software and so on. So yeah, check it out. Have cool. you have you looked at it, Graham? I haven't clicked on many of the links. I admit. I I scrolled through it and didn't click on a single link yet. So yeah, I was one good stuff in there. Here, this is this is a, something our our listeners would be interested in. How do you start an awesome list? How do you build an awesome? What well, first of all, what is an awesome list? Well, it, I, I guess it's something that people have been doing with things like you know, let's collect all the best papers on deep learning or you know that kind of thing. Um, similar to the sort of stuff you get on Wikipedia, there's a list of. I think the list is now called comparison of free geophysics software 
on Wikipedia, which is a list that I started a few years ago. Um, just to try and, you know, curate projects that, you know, it's really hard to find stuff that isn't um, gathering dust, is <laughs> actively maintained, seems to be useful, it actually works, people have tried it, all that kind of thing. So that, I guess that's the idea is to save people a bit of time by unearthing and advertising these things. But, you know, this, this awesome Open Geoscience list um, is basically just a list of links with short descriptions um, and a little kind of icon saying what the package is written in. You know, some of them are in C and MATLAB and, of course, Python. Um, and, yeah, you can start one really easily by just making an account on github.com and then um, starting a Markdown document. Um, Markdown is just a, a markup language for adding headings and links and stuff like that to a document. Uh, it's easy to learn, much easier than, say, LaTeX. And um, yeah, just st stick it up there and invite people to contribute. And before you know it, you've got a list of you know 40 or 50 cool projects for things like Krieging and reading well logs and modeling seismic. Cool. I put another link up there in the show notes for a the beginning of a list. It's not an awesome list yet because it doesn't follow their sort of cleanliness principles. Um, but it is for a, for for graph problems in machine learning. Um, Purvis, Steve Purvis assembled a lot of it, most of it, um, hmm. and we're adding to it daily uh, because I've been doing a lot of work with graph these days. Yeah, how's uh, how's that going? Last time you said you didn't know what graphs were. <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I was having trouble getting my head around the non. That's that's too specific. I was having trouble getting my head around the fact that all these authors are treating graph as the exist the information existing on Riemann manifolds. I don't think that's. I mean, that's true in certain cases, um, but I think information would, networks. Would, huh? would you like to back up a second and explain what the hell you just said? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so if we think, if we look at a sheet of paper, there are words and things on this sheet of paper, and if you were to travel from point A to point B on this sheet of paper, there would be a shortest path defined by what? A straight line. Yes, correct. Ding, ding, ding. But. If we do something weird, like contort the paper, change, so the, by the way, the paper is called the Euclidean geometry space, and we could define those coordinates and Cartesian coordinates, but if we do something weird to the paper, or if we think about defining distances on, a, on the globe or something, for instance, um, we change the so-called metric of the space, which is that line, mm -hmm. that shortest distance thingy, that's sort of a, a bad way of defining metric, but anyway, um, you can define geometries on all sorts of weird different shapes. And the one commonality that you would like to see in the case of what these authors are saying about their information networks is print properties of the space that are continuous and differentiable. So basically smooth and nice and pretty. Mm -hmm. Without lots of uh, angular uh, bends in them and things like that that make 
angular Make bands. The gradient difficult to describe. Right? Or even even and, worse would be sort of um, holes in the space, or right. or um, say Eight self things. self connections, which are a big important part of uh, information networks. So if you have self edges, self links uh, between information nodes, you destroy the the smoothness of your space. So anyway, I'm st I'm starting to begin to really understand what a graph is, but I'm still not fully there. So yet. was your your piece of paper was an analogy for a Riemannian manifold? Is that is that what that was? Yeah, because um, you used those words earlier. That would be one example, sort of the the um, flat Euclidean geometry, happy world is one example of a manifold. Okay. So is so, so is a sphere, spherical space. So that in that right, case, right. you would Euclidean geometry. But yeah. So sort of generalized idea of of graphs to sort of n dimensions. Mm -hmm. so, but yes, yes. Um, but again, d n dimensions isn't a good way of thinking about generalized information networks because they don't have necessarily continuous dimensionality, which makes mm -hmm. them very weird. So that's what I'm still getting my head around. I see. Cool. Well, you know, as you were, continue. Please <laughs> report back on a regular basis. Next time with a whiteboard. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, the only other white coat. The only other thing I wanted to mention is the GPU costs and benefits thing that I just oh, put, yeah. put on Twitter just not even thirty minutes ago. Um, I, in case you're interested in renting GPU time on Amazon or whatever, and or buying GPU computers, uh, I put a link on Twitter with some images of how much it costs to do those things. And what kind of computational benefit you get from from doing these things? And there's there's a link to the to the repo on there. The code is horrible. I just started by trying to plot one graph, and so it's it's a really a mess. But um, there you go. It's all up I didn't there. notice before if one of the computers is that sort of 10x um, Nvidia, you know, sort of consumer GPU thing that uh, we were looking at before we talked about on the show and mm -hmm. I think Lucas also linked to recently. Yeah. That's on there. Um, were you, was that one of the machines? Yes. So the, 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 I did three three viable machines. One is that one. One is the uh, DGX1, which is $150,000 straight up without all the co you know electricity and, and support costs. Uh, supercomputer, and then um, they sell like a half-speed one of those, which they're calling the DGX station. So that's on there right. too. Yeah. So it, I was actually surprised by the results. You should go check it out. Yeah, really interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and yeah, it it looks like that DL11, I guess, is the sort of home-built thing. Does really well, yep. right? Am I reading that correctly? You are reading that correctly. I was surprised to figure that out. Hmm. I, I didn't think it's, and it's also the cheap, basically it, over the long run, it's the cheapest option. Yeah, right, because so it was like $15,000 or something. Yeah, the, the 11 is 16.5 just for hardware costs. Um, 
Yeah, so so I, I don't know. I mean, if you're into hacking together hardware and software solutions, that's probably the way to go. Pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention before we reintroduce our guest? Um, well, let's see. Let me remind myself. Uh, no. <laughs> it can all wait. It's all just sort of ongoing general stuff. I guess maybe I will mention I, I've uh, put a couple of posts up on the blog this week on agilescientific.com. Um, about because I spent a bit of time last week reviewing abstracts for the APG conference next year, and I, I mean I only did a handful. Some people were reviewing a hundred, two hundred abstracts, which yeah, it just sounds Ready. awful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that's you know fun, uh, or that it would feel productive. Um, and I was just really a bit sort of dismayed at the the quality. I felt like at least half of them were just I don't know, just really not very interesting at all. And, um, you know, so that I was just like writing vague on them and I didn't really know what the thing was about or I felt like it could have been written 30 years ago and like I couldn't see what was new or do you know what I mean? Like what the compelling bit of the story was or why you would want to present this stuff. And, uh, and I, I was surprised, I guess. So I wrote about that and then three academics, who uh, all of whom I respect very much, uh, all sedimentologists came back and said, well, it's not surprising that they're vague. We have to put the abstract in like six, nine, even 12 months before the, <laughs> oh before the conference. So we haven't done the work yet. You know, but basically we're going to present on something and we don't know yet what the, we can't put details in. There are no details. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. It's not just me that does that then. Because... Uh, I always felt a little bit guilty trying to predict the future like that. And then I'm like, wow, that's that's a real shame. So I wrote a follow-up today on what I think we should do about that. And the punchline basically is that I don't think you can really fix the abstract situation if you want up-to-minute research at your conference. Instead, you have to change how conferences work. So it's yet, yet another... <laughs> time that I've reached that same conclusion but anyway well I think we don't need to talk about that anymore I think it's lovely you know it's that's that's science I mean you you present your hypothesis in the form of an abstract right if you have to submit early I mean it's better not to come you know come to your conclusions yeah. as you go along but I guess the problem for me though is that since we don't no one seems to do proceedings from conferences anymore. There is no published <laughs> aftermath from the conference. So the only thing kind of on record is the abstract. Mm. And the abstracts were all written before any of the results of the studies were known. So, they, so they're useless. And, and except worse, as a thriller. Wonder, except, yeah. But I also wonder if, hang on a minute, if we're getting people to write what they're going to present before they've done the work, then we're basically opening the door very wide indeed, a very large door with a really big sign over it to sort of confirmation bias, which is already a problem, even when you know about it, to sort of say, let's make sure that the results you get line up with the thing you said you were going to present. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So you're saying the converse of what I said. Yeah, I think it's a, I think there's a real risk that you're putting the 
research cart before the horse kind of thing and forcing people essentially to come up with what they said they were going to come up with. Well, they didn't. I mean, do they do all these abstracts include anticipated results? It seems to me like if you were doing your job as a scientist, you would just present, here's what we're going to try. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I guess I'd want to go back and sort of reread a bunch in the light of reading them like that. I mean, if someone needs to do that study, I guess, that meta-analysis of right. what happened. But either way, you end up with a bunch of abstracts that don't reflect the content of the conference, and that seems like a problem too. So um, anyway, I don't know. I, we're going to try and experiment next year, two experiments actually, with unconferences. Um, so I guess we'll see how that goes, and if it's any better. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it has a whole bunch of other problems that I haven't anticipated yet. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And without further ado, Yuri, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks. Hey, where are you? Trondheim, Norway, one of the meeting rooms of uh, Trondheim University, Antonio. Is that where you study? Yep, that's uh, where I work and study. What are you working on? Uh, so I'm working on my PhD thesis, and it's um, basically wrapping things up. Uh, maybe two months left, and then I'll submit nice. the thesis um, and hopefully defend in February, March. Nice. Yep. And um, the thesis has this vague name of um, <laughs> or thrombic anisotropy or tilted or thrombic anisotropy. That's a, that's a big subject. Ah, uh, yeah, indeed. So what were you testing? Oh, wait, wait, wait. before we, before, I guess before we get into yeah. that, what are tilted orthorhombic media? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is uh, one of the models for our uh, subsurface wave propagation. And um, I guess I'll have to explain uh, in two words what the anisotropy is. Yeah. And actually, I have to mention, I was very much pleased uh, to read the 52 things in geophysics. And the first one being the one by Grechka Vladimir about anisotropy, that we should oh, yeah. <laughs> care about it. Right, so basically it's a directional dependence of uh, seismic or of uh, uh, any kind of wave uh, propagation properties. And in seismic, I guess it was a big thing. Well, it, it, it started off uh, 30 years ago in exploration and with a simple model of layered structure. And if you have layered structure and the wavelength is much, much larger than the heterogeneity and you have different velocities along the layers or perpendicular to the layers. And right, so waves propagating yeah. in sort of the x direction move either more slowly or more quickly than waves propagating in the y direction. Yeah, if y is down or yes, and x is uh, most certainly faster. Right. Yeah, and then the uh, so this model is still used a lot nowadays, but uh, there is a, a good evidence that this is not enough and we should go further, especially if we introduce fractures in our systems. And it should be azimutally and azotropic as well. And these are our thrombic models. So it's a layered and fractured. And tilted is basically, you tilt the whole thing. So the, uh, the symmetry doesn't change 
it's still our thrombic. But in our coordinates of uh, surface seismic, we observe it as a more complicated model. So right. that's why it's called tilted. So um, in, the, in the case of tilted media, are you uh, describing, for instance, in a, in a geo model, would that be like a single fault block? Yeah, for instance, but um, in, I think, tilted or thrombic, yeah, you're right. And the, the most of, uh, I think, areas where it's applied, if you have like salt domes, uh, very complicated stress regimes, and you have uh, layers that are tilted, and then they can be fractured due to this growing salt, uh, salt bodies. Or, yeah. So what's, what's the difference? I think a lot of people might have heard of TTI, tilted mm -hmm. transverse isotropic media. Um, what's the difference between that and what you're dealing with, this orthorhombic sort of aspect? Uh, mathematically, it's different number of parameters or parameter space is different to describe these models and, and tilted TTI, which is uh, still a People can call it 3D, but they inherently it's 2D model. Uh, hmm. if, because if you go back to the uh, original coordinate system, you don't have azimuths in your system. When you introduce a tilt, okay, you have azimuths, but the still the, you need the same number of parameters plus two tilts to describe it. But hmm. uh, Trombic is fully 3D model, so you need three angles to define the orientation and you need land parameters to define the elastic properties. Yeah, well, it's uh, beyond <laughs> beyond what we can resolve for sure. Do you uh, like? <laughs> I feel like just writing down those equations must be quite <laughs> laborious. <laughs> like, yeah, well, that's, that's that's what I do in my PhD. To be honest, I'm just writing <laughs> equations, deriving equations. It really I, okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of symbolic just math writing out stuff derivations in your thesis yeah a lot yeah <laughs> and i i glad i'm glad we have this uh mathematica or wolfram language which i can use right. okay yeah it's been my workhorse for last three years yeah okay both for um yeah because i'm not very familiar with those sort of systems but those things can do sort of simplifications um rearrangements uh, that kind of thing very powerful yes. you can integrate yes. you can take limits uh, differentiate solve systems of differential equations and uh, a lot of interesting stuff oh wow and i haven't uh, explored yeah like to 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 the maximum capacity so okay yeah i, I no I've, I've never really played around with them i played a little bit with simpy which i guess is a sort of pythonized version of a similar concept. I, I haven't think. tried it. I know MATLAB has a symbolic package as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And then occasionally, if I can't rearrange an equation on my own, <laughs> I occasionally will resort to Wolfram Alpha or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It would have been a really awesome thing to have at school. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, good and bad, I think. I was, it was a paper by Leon Thompson published in maybe 1980 eight or nine, I mm -hmm. might be wrong on that. And in the um, appendix, it says, okay, how we calculate this actually, we use Wolfram Mathematica. <laughs> so it's 30 years ago already there. Oh, okay. People use it, yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people have got a lot of mileage out of basically playing around with um, Aki Richards' equation and uh, Zoeprit's in Wolfram mm. or in uh, Mathematica yeah. and similar packages too, right? With like different expressions for elastic properties and so on. Yeah, you're right. The paper was on AVO in TI. Okay, yeah, right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't gotten to Yuri's actual research topic yet. So how, how does your work fit into uh, tilt-orthromic uh, anisotropy? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, well, good question. But I don't have a, like, a single uh, problem I solve. Do you have a title for your thesis? <laughs> yeah, it will be seismic processing in tilted orthrhombic media, something like that. Okay. But it's more like a using more complicated orthrhombic tilted orthrhombic models in different subjects of seismic exploration. So basically, since I don't have to deliver a uh, monograph, it can be a collection of papers. I just mm -hmm. do a lot of different things using this model. That's awesome. And it was some dynamics, some kinematics, uh, guided waves, shear wave singularity. So it's very diverse, but like the connecting line is tilted or thrombic. <laughs> oh, interesting. Is that, is that a fairly common way to put a thesis together in Norway or in NTNU? I think so. I think most of the people do thesis as a collection of papers. Some have a like FWI and VTI media, for instance, and then they publish few few papers in this subject. I see. But it's cool. it's much simpler in this this way. Yeah. And yeah, I think you can feels... have more research done in this, right. this way as well. Yeah, yeah, and it just I think it gets you off to a really great start. You know, with uh, with publishing and gets your your work out there, and it's useful, mm -hmm. and you can start doing it kind of right away rather than kind of a lot of people otherwise wait until kind of the end of their PhD yeah, to, right. to publish. That's that right. Seems really nice. What is the uh, what's the department? What's geophysics at uh, NTNU like? We are so it used to be a department of petroleum engineering and applied geophysics until last year. We were about um, maybe thirty people, PhDs mm -hmm. and professors, and four professors. And now we merged with geology department, so it's a big, a big department with a lot of research groups. We have a lot of rock physics activities, and drilling, and uh, things like that, and a lot of experimental laboratories. But mm, uh, right. the geophysical part is uh, still for professors. And it's it, the the university itself is uh, basically a pure um, science and technology and engineering university, isn't it? It's it's called like it's called this, but it has a, a big uh, social studies department as well, separate oh, building okay. up on a different area of the town. Yeah. It's, okay, right. uh, it merged with two or three other uh, high schools and universities in Norway, and now it's the biggest university in Norway. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> okay, close. I think around forty thousand people overall. Oh wow, that's yeah. enormous. Yeah, that's huge. The M and A, but they it's in States. it's in two towns, Tron or oh, three towns: Trondheim, Olesund, and Jovik. And I, 
they just started like this. So I'm not sure how they're going to manage this uh, logistically. <laughs> it's going to be uh, a lot of work. How far apart are those cities, towns? Yeah, stone throw in the Russian perspective. It's around 40 <laughs> minutes fly. Okay. Yeah, but maybe five, six hours drive. Yeah, right. Uh, pretty crazy. So, and um, how, how long have you been in uh, in Norway and in Trondheim there? Yeah, so I moved to Trondheim three and a half years ago after I uh, worked for Schlamrige for two years in Bergen. Oh, okay. So I've oh. been in Norway for almost six years now. Yeah. What were you doing with Slumberjay? I was uh, doing well logging. I was a field engineer offshore Norway. It was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the industry from absolutely different side. And I'm very grateful for this experience. Yeah, that sounds really cool. What are your um, plans after grad school? I applied for a few jobs. I want to stay in Norway. Uh, want to do want to have more exposure to industry and uh, try to apply the knowledge I've I've gained uh, during PhD and especially last year I think when I started was this uh, not a, I can can't call it data science but at least I got interested in and when I participated in hackathon and so tried to develop this uh, this branch as well. So are you, are you planning on uh, doing seismic processing work? Is, is your goal to keep working with anisotropy and? Yeah, yeah. processing and imaging, I guess, would be more interesting. Cool. Awesome. Um, so speaking of hackathons, how did you like the hackathon? Because you were at the one in Paris, right? Yeah, that was awesome. It was a great vibe, and I liked the event. I'm, Unfortunately, couldn't participate in Houston. I really wanted to, but uh, the Paris one was, uh, yeah, I op opener for me. Yeah. What? Uh, how so? I mean, it, it sounds like you're interested in in data science and th things other than pure seismic imaging. Uh, did you find a lot of that uh, experience at, at the hackathon? I don't think I found particular experience in, in data science. But it was, was more like I was introduced to the tools, to the community itself. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It was a, a great social platform. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, um, that's, that's definitely one of the features, isn't it? It's kind of hard to describe, but it is a, a really unique uh, but productive environment. You know, um, Yeah, it was really fun having you there from Norway. That was where I first met. Yuri and he very kindly I don't know where you'd heard that I lived in Norway but he brought me some uh, quick lunch <laughs> uh, from in his baggage I suppose in his luggage which was very sweet of him and uh, they were delicious too um, quick lunch is a sort of hiking it's a Norwegian Kit Kat basically um, <laughs> but it's a very iconic yeah. Norwegian confection um, but yeah, it was uh, a couple of you traveled from uh, from NTNU, and what you, the project you were working on was um, I can't remember the chap's name, but there was a there was a guy there from CGG, right, who wanted Sorry. to recognize um, uh, events and classify events on shot gathers. Can you tell That's us right. about what you guys were up to? Yeah, so 
it was um, Song's idea, and uh, from what I understood, it was uh, a CGG had some interest in this uh, internally. If you have a shot gather uh, and you have some events and without doing much of processing, can you just tell what these are? Some coherent noise, incoherent noise, um, primary reflections, direct wave, uh, well, multiples. It's it's always uh, a bit of speculation, of course, but um, yeah, that's what the idea was to classify the the events in the short gather. Right, and one thing I was uh, a bit unsure about was were you identifying the events as well or starting with no no we know where the events are we just need to figure out what kind of what kind of events they are do you know what i mean so were you actually detecting the events as well like starting with nothing and going okay let's a find the events and b classify them or was it more like no no we've got the events let's classify them yeah well it, it the the problem sounds very interesting and deep but there was uh, much shallower than that so we first said we are working in a radon transform space. So basically, we already have this um, P, tau, tau P or tau Q, what they call it, and, and um, the hyperbolic uh, or parabolic uh, radon transform domains. Mm -hmm. And then we can identify the events there, then we start from there. So we didn't identify the events. We already assumed we had them. Okay. Then we I just see. had to classify them based right, on the features in tau p or tau q space. Oh, I see. So in this sense, we didn't do proper job uh, transforming time domain or uh, time space domain into time slowness domain. We already kind of started in the slowness uh, and uh, uh, arrival time domain. Yeah, okay, I understand. But still, I mean, the uh, the classifier that you guys built was uh, doing a pretty decent job, as I recall. It was, and if you look, I think if you look at the feature space, and these events will be quite good separatable. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay. So, but um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's I mean, there's a big, clearly... big problem would be to, to first get the events there. Yeah. Especially in obviously in sort of noisy data or yeah you know. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, overlapping shot uh, shots that kind of thing no I mean uh, that's the I think the fun thing about um, doing data science with seismic and with subsurface data at the moment is it's just it's like ev there's a problem basically everywhere you look there's something yeah. interesting to work on definitely you know, that's what. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating because you're like, oh, I want to work on this, but I want to work on this as well. And some of the problems, many of them are overlapping. So it's like, well, I want to work on this, but I can't do that until I've done this. I can't do that until I've done this. Um, but yeah, that's what's so exciting about it. And it's, you know, one of the, another sort of raison d'etre for the hackathons is to get as many people working on these problems as possible because there's so many of them like, mm -hmm. it's going to take an army to, yeah. to sort of progress, I think. Um, no, that's really cool. Uh, have you guys, have you hacked on that project at all since then or been in touch with Song or uh, I think you were hacking with Justin and uh, a couple of other people? Yeah, so it was, uh, Justin helped us a lot from from Houston remotely. 
uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> big hand for for this uh, to him. But um, I've, we get contact. We were contacted by a person from somewhere from Canada, asking like, well, what exactly we did because the guy tried to apply this uh, sort of concept to horizon picking, picking, and then I where we discussed and. Uh, I basically told him this is not the way to go with uh, horizon picking because uh, like you have to find a domain where the data is separable so you right. can classify it won't work in this particular uh, uh, way but yeah, no right. we, we we haven't worked after that so okay. i'm not sure what song song did i i, I talked talk to him talked with him about uh, the employment and stuff like that, but not about the, the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, thanks thing you know, it'll be a, a new CGG product. <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, no, I was thinking of you guys because um, someone at the Houston Hackathon was working on a similar problem, actually. Um, I think they were trying to specifically identify multiples. I'd have to go back and look at the, I can't remember which team it was. I think they might have been from Slumberjay. Um, was that part of the they, noise they were... multiple removal, or was there a separate team working on classification? Multiple removal, yeah. I said. I think it was the same team. I think they sort of pivoted halfway through their project because ah. the first problem they attacked was too hard. So then they moved to basically just try and identify which gathers had multiple problems. Right. Um, yeah, they started off trying to use a GAN, and they ended up, I think, using ConfNets. But um, yeah, you know, again, uh, it'll take lots of different people looking at these things with lots of different approaches. Actually, it would make a really fun data science contest to, you know, where, where were you guys getting your gathers? Do you remember, Yuri? <laughs> Synthetically. You just generated them on the fly, basically, or did Song have them? Yeah, yeah. We, we generated them on the fly. Okay. But we generated them in tau p domain and classified them in tau p domain. And then right. we converted it to time space domain and displayed them and then overlaid what we identified on top. So yeah, I see. It was so you knew, yeah, because it's super simple. Sort of, yeah, yeah. But you have to know what everything is. Did, um, did you use what a finite difference? Model no, or no, something no. So I'm saying we generated it uh, just randomly in tau p domain. Oh, and oh, then, I see. Yeah. yeah and then just convolt with the wavelet and the uh, tx. Got it. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I mean, I you know, that's I think that's what you you can start with stuff like that, right? And mm -hmm. gradually make the problem more realistic, more computationally intensive, and so on. Yeah. Um, do. How much sort of computational stuff, and do you get good support for doing uh, computation and numerical stuff at NTNU? How much is going on there? We have a, a group working on uh, modeling migration and inversion. They have uh, two clusters. I think we have a huge cluster for the university. We can schedule our time as well for or on. But we, I think we have enough capacity to do things internally in the department. The department. Okay. So we have yeah. codes uh, in Madagascar, I think, for uh, VTI, uh, finite difference modeling, and full waveform inversion. We have some 
some uh, migration codes, uh, RTM and uh, uh, wave equation, different types of migration. So it's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. yeah and, and it's uh, quite easy to get uh, uh, new hardware if you need. Oh, okay, also that's have cool. G GPUs. So, yeah. are there, and are there a lot of undergrads at the university, or is it mostly uh, postgrad? Well, I haven't figured out if to be honest, because we are kind of separated, the PhDs and master students. And I think at the department doing geophysics and petroleum uh, studies are only fifth year students or something like that. So master, pro master program is uh, one, two years and we don't have a, a undergrad or bachelor program here for geophysics. Okay. So it's not a, not a lot of people. I teach a few classes, and I think it's uh, 20, 30 people, masters. Right. And is there any teaching in kind of MATLAB or Python or anything like that? We use MATLAB for teaching in Madagascar. Yeah, OK. No Python so far. Even with the Madagascar stuff, the scones and there's a well, yeah, there. yeah. Well, we use some some scripting there, but uh, not. Uh, we don't do any computations in Python. No, oh, I see. Or using Python. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Um, so it's like uh, you shared your, I think, Twitter handle, which is in the uh, in the show notes, and uh, I noticed in there there was some a, a couple of references to like telemark skiing and stuff it's it's that it seems like you do quite a bit of outdoor stuff is that one of your kind of uh non-geophysics related activities yeah absolutely i'm uh, i do a lot of uh, ski touring and rock climbing oh okay when i when i'm not uh, at the university <laughs> and norway <laughs> is the best playground for it i think yeah it's amazing yeah I'm excited just to get out of the uh, sedimentary basin that is Louisiana. <laughs> so there's some actual rocks near me now. Yeah, right. There's some. Yeah. There's some. Isn't there some climbing, rock climbing around Austin too? Even. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, walking distance Proper from my house, house, actually. Oh wow! So, come on down. That's pretty awesome. I was yeah, really in, into climbing at Manchester. My my supervisor was a oh, probably still is but he was a sort of uh, a really awesome rock climber oh yeah and you know put up a lot of new routes and stuff and uh started climbing there with a bunch of other phd folks and i really i really miss it climbing in the uk is just so well developed there's so many routes there's um there's lots of you know lots of places to go where you'll find stuff at all levels and I tried climbing a bit in the Rockies, and it was just like so scary and hard, and the mountains had falling to bits, and everything mm. was totally intense. And I was just like, "Yeah, I'm not doing this anymore." <laughs> I went ice climbing a couple of times. It was Ooh. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not for me. Oh, and freezing cold. You know, it's like yeah, it, it's a cold, cold day, and then you're in the bottom of like a canyon or whatever. Because that's where the you know good ice is, so it's like minus twenty five, and you know you're belaying and trying to keep ropes and everything straight, and everything's getting buried in the snow, and and then you've got to concentrate and not die. 
Yeah, that one important uh, detail. Yeah, it's like but and a I, few I, days I, after the trip, you already start thinking about the next one. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that. I I get it, but it was too intense for me. And the ice well, climbing too, like you're anchoring by like drilling little holes into the ice and then putting your yeah. rope through these little holes so that the only thing that's stopping you from dying is a piece of rope that is looped through the ice. Oh, what do they call that? A triangle or something? What uh, do they call that anchor? That's it's got good. a Russian name. Snow anchor? Or... I don't no. know. I don't know anything about that. That's when physics background uh, becomes important. Eh? <laughs> that's right. I think it's called an Abalakov uh, anchor or something. You yeah, could bring your laptop anchor. with Mathematica on it and uh, calculate the uh, impulse required to break an ice anchor. But let, let, let's check it out because, okay, okay, Vitaly Abalakov invented it. I bet you anything he died in a climbing accident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lost several fingers, part of his foot. Doesn't say how he died. Probably, probably yeah. just disappeared one day. And everyone was like, "Yeah, I knew that would happen." <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I will. I will go. I, I already have a, a trip planned to do some climbing this weekend. So, I'll, in next next few weeks, Matt, I'll give you the full report. So, you, when you come down to visit, you'll you'll have all your gear. I'll, I'll tell you where to go. It'll be perfect. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I, 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 bouldering, you'll get me out bouldering. I enjoy that. Oh, that's it. If, well, pretty much. I don't really enjoy like trad and ropes and stuff. Um, Yuri, have you tried orienteering? No, but I know that's a big thing in Norway. Yeah, it's huge. we have a couple of PhD students doing this, but I, okay. I figured I don't have enough time for all the activities I want to try, so have to be careful. So when I, my friend brought me, uh, tried to introduce me to downhill biking, and I, when I crashed and I said, no, I was really happy that I want to keep my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. No, you can only do so much. No, we've, uh, it's all orienteering all the time in our house at the moment. So we've got mm. a mapper staying with us. who's from, He lives in Japan as an Australian guy. Uh, so he's like a world-class orienteering mapper. What's a mapper? Wow. Well, so have you heard of orienteering? Yes. The sport. But tell us what it is, yeah, is so, it briefly. So basically, it's a, it's running, fundamentally, and you go into the forest to an event. There's you at the start. It's a time trial, so that everyone starts at different times. You get a map when you start, and you don't get to see the map until you start. Turn the map over. And all you're allowed is a compass, no GPS or anything like that. Compass and a whistle. Um, and a toothpick and a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, basically. And then you navigate your way around the course of, let's say, between 15 and 25 controls. So okay. visit them in order uh, using a little electronic device that records your visits and timing and everything. And uh, yeah, it's a, a straight up time trial running race and yeah. to people like world champions are obviously supreme athletes and run very fast indeed and are very good at navigating and i guess a good course would have a lot of route choice uh so that there was a, all clear alternatives um depending on whether you ran more quickly or were better at navigating and so on but the map you use is quite specialized because it basically indicates um 
essentially it indicates how fast you can run it's kind of like a like a velocity map how fast, um, oh, between between various points on the on the map okay yeah because usually in the forest right so basically the the map tries to say okay this in it doesn't care about what kind of trees it is or anything like that it's basically saying uh that you can run through this forest or it gets progressively harder and depending on the colors of the maps if you google like orienteering map oh, you'll see yeah. they've got quite particular colors and then they 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 mark lots of features so there'll be like pits and boulders uh, individual trees sometimes um and other features uh that you wouldn't normally get on the map basically right and and the, the map um the course setter will use those features obviously for control sites um so making an orienteering map is a fairly specialized hmm. bit that's of photography what being a mapper is called is that's what this guy does so he's making yeah. some they, new maps for nova scotia they are linear in uh, uh, space yeah i mean that uh, the coordinates are preserved so yes the, yeah. the distances are preserved okay yeah yeah it's a it's yeah it's a legit map but the the colors on the map uh reflect how open the terrain is basically yeah, and then very, there are contours. very interesting yeah yeah um, if you're, so if you're into guy, maps it's a it's a really hmm. would be interesting to like have a non-migrated map with uh, <laughs> it, uh, tra travel or oh, distance uh, travel time uh, yeah, cool yeah that, that'd be really uh, really quite interesting and you can almost do that these days in elite events the competitors are all wearing gps so you actually know exactly where they've been and how fast they've gone mm. use those so great paths uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool um distort the map for velocity so is this cool. is this mapper guy uh is this is that his profession mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh so yeah, he's he was in... an elite orienteer uh -huh. um and now he just does mapping and course setting and course controlling and this kind of thing for things like world championships and so on so is there a championship or something coming up in nova scotia that he's preparing for or? uh no no they basically the orienteering association here sort of saved up and got you know a few thousand bucks together to justify bringing him over to make cool. these maps and each one takes him about a week or so um cool yeah it's uh it was a it's, it's huge in the uk uh and most european countries i say have a pretty decent orienteering scene um we did a lot in norway it was very hard in norway the terrain is so difficult um <laughs> like it's glaciated so lots of very intricate topography and then it's all forest so you can't see more than 100 meters so it was pretty humiliating orienteering in norway <laughs> uh, and then we did a bit in calgary but then you're like and i'm not even exaggerating you're running into bison and stuff like that in the forest <laughs> there's one place anyway my wife ran into a moose carcass one place there's obviously there's bears and cougars and things so it was a bit intense and the scene in nova scotia is all right it's very it's very low-key which is fine that suits us fine the kids are doing it the kids are having fun i saw a picture on instagram the other day of you finishing an orienteering race oh yeah yeah there you go <laughs> hey yuri what are you reading at the moment i read i'm reading kurt vonnegut player oh, yeah. piano hmm. It's uh, his first novel. 
And I think he wrote it inspired by uh, Evgeny Zamatin. So it's a dy dystopian novel. <laughs> Not getting enough dystopia in the real world. No, I, a friend of mine started to read dystopian books and I got uh, hooked up and uh, read uh, five in a row. So oh, wow. I get really interested. Yeah. How's, how's your stress level? <laughs> That's your blood pressure. Uh, no, it's it's all right. It's, uh, I mean, when you when you only read about it, it's fine. When you close the book, you can turn it off. Well, it probably seems quite relaxing when in your real world you, you just exactly, have your yeah. But it's surprising. <laughs> so I um, read and I like you read the novels from fifty six years old, and you basically you you have a feeling you read about today, and this is scary hmm. sometimes. Yeah. So this uh, good cool. writers there. So I have this ability to look into the future. I think, or is there the same was happening that time, or they just very uh, talented? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But I also that? parallel into to this. Uh, sorry, I read this book and um, acoustic <laughs> fields and wave solutions. How's that one? That's a good that one. sounds dystopian it's a good as well. One. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, a good lot one. of people. Yeah, it's a good one, and uh, I enjoy reading this old uh, old textbooks. I think it's much better what than uh, what's sixties. Uh, I think this is a second edition, uh, republished in ninety uh, nineteen seventy three. The first mm -hmm. uh, edition. Yeah, oh, I love the uh, I love the thought of finding some really good examples of texts like that and um, just sort of, I don't know, I guess just on a GitHub repo or something, just gradually reproducing them and coding up the coding up the examples and the equations and things. I think that would be really, that'd be really fun. Moving like, forward through a time and editions. Say that again? Moving forward through time. Uh, by going through the new newer editions. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, not yeah, not necessarily. I guess just um, just so that part, partly to make sure that they they're remembered and they're sort of recommended through you know through the fact that it was worth reproducing this textbook. It's like this is a canonical book kind of thing, um, and 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 you know. Uh, the the ones that come to mind for me are uh, um, Chris Liner's book, which is a bit frustrating because I think most of it he did do in code, um, because I think a lot of the figures are from Mathematica. Actually, um, it just doesn't have any code in it, so mm -hmm. I suspect it all exists. Uh, that's the Elements of Three D Seismology book, oh, yeah. and the other one that I think would make a really awesome kind of interactive computational book <laughs> is. Uh, uh, Rob Sim, I guess it's Sim and Bacon, is it? The uh, Seismic Amplitudes book. Some really nice figures in there. Um, yeah, it's just a really attractive book. Um, yeah, that, yeah it's a, that, isn't that it a black book? Oh, so, uh, uh, yeah, or maybe dark blue. Yeah, it's not very big. Um, and I think the uh, the stuff that came out of Stanford, too, um, could be cool, like the rock physics, rock physics handbook and that kind of thing. What's that? Yeah, 
No, sorry. Right. I'm, no, I'm, I'm sitting on a toolbox. My chair hasn't arrived yet. I almost <laughs> fell over. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so the chair will be in for the next episode. Don't worry. Uh, but what do you, so Matt, what are you reading? Speaking of, uh, oh, I, of uh, amateur radio shows. Yeah, I just finished um, a really good book, actually. I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Um, by Jessica Abel called Out on the Wire. And I, <laughs> I'm not a big, I, I listen to a handful of podcasts, but I don't listen to some of the classic podcasts that I know people talk about, like um, uh, Radio Lab. Yeah. Uh, I've listened to a, a couple of episodes of that. And uh, what's the other one? Um, the, this American Life, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, Ira Glass. Um, anyway, I know they're they're really popular, and there are s several of them of that kind of quality. Um, but I had, I'd heard you know heard some people describing these shows as, um, you know, I like the pinnacle of radio sort of thing and podcasting. And Jessica in this book, Jessica Abel basically unpicks their methodology and she goes and visits a lot of these podcasts and spends time with them and figures out how they put these stories together. And uh, it's a really quite candid uh, ha part sort of, um, uh, what would you call it, um, exposition on how, on the process, mm -hmm. uh, but also with lots of quite personal interviews about how, what it's like going through that process and, um, meeting deadlines and getting all getting all that tape and doing all that editing because they just spend so long on these stories i mean 12 minute stories and they're starting with like 30 hours of tape this kind of thing i mean it's totally incredible um that's what we do too <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean it gave me it gave me a kind of respect for what they're doing because they're they're writing scripts but it yeah. also, I, I felt uh, some of it I thought was a bit icky. You know, they'll literally like, they're not above making, sort of making stuff up. I mean, they chop almost into words yeah. some of the interviews. Right. So that they can get the interviewee to sort of say what they want them to say. <laughs> it sounds a bit weird. It's, it's slightly unethical almost. <laughs> um, you, you know, but... And and there's also a bit of this kind of what would you call it, middle class elite intellectualism about it that's a bit uh, I don't know icky somehow. But I don't know. It, it, I'm I'm glad I read the book. It's definitely interesting and definitely made me think a bit about how we do the podcast and what. <laughs> you should send. What you should send me your copy. Good radio. <laughs> you should send yeah. me your copy so I can learn those thing principles as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I'll happily do that. You'll have to give me a new, um, a new address. Ah, yes. But because um, I've got another podcasting book winging its way towards me, or I think actually it's about NPR, so not really podcasting. But um, yeah, you know, creating good content is definitely an art that we clearly haven't mastered well our guests yeah, so, i mean yeah absolutely no i think um at the root of it is talking to real people about real stuff you know right um and and doing it in under an hour and with a little bit of commentary i think that's a really good start 
<laughs> and life is being honest. Yeah, exactly. The honesty and the being candid and um, I love uh, I, I I love the fact that all these things are getting captured, sort of for posterity, if you like. Like when I look back at our archive, yeah. Um, really love that we've got all these people chatting about just ordinary geophysical research and machine learning insights. I think it's a really great resource. I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> At least for you and I. Someone's, someone's enjoying yeah. the process. Okay. Um, what are you reading, Graham? I have no update. I'm still reading. I'm very, I mean, I'm, I've been moving for weeks, so I haven't really made much progress. But I, I'm still working on that book, Stoned, by Asia Radin. And uh, it, it is turning out to be really good. So it's uh, so far halfway through when it's recommended. So um, I'll give you an update when it's done. Yuri, Sweet. thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We look forward to uh, hearing about your defense and wish you the best. Send you the tears. <laughs> we will see you, audience, next time on Undersampled Radio with some guest that I don't remember. There it is. <laughs> bye. <laughs> okay, <you>. bye. <laughs> That's it. Bye. <laughs>